Okay, folks, we'll get started tonight. If you check your emails, you'll see that I did send some notes tonight. I want to begin by sort of recapping the last Bible study that we had a couple of weeks ago. I know it's been a few weeks, so I just want to remind you that we're starting out in 2022. We're studying the story of God through the lives of the people that God interacted with that gave us our Holy Bible. When you think about all the many billions of people that have been born and lived and died on this planet over all the generations, it's really, to me, very, uh, you know, very special, very particular that God chose really in comparison just a handful of people. Now, in your Bible, there are many, many stories, but compared to all of the people who've ever lived, you know, it's a very small fraction. And yet, through these people, God chose to tell his own story about his love, about his grace, about his plan and purpose for you and for me and for the whole world. And in particular, the story about his son, Jesus Christ. And when we think of our Bibles, a lot of times we think of them kind of as handbooks or rule books, list of things we should do, list of things we shouldn't do. But And there's some of that in there. But mostly what our Bible is, is a series of interconnected historical stories from the lives of a particular group of people that progressively and collectively reveal the character, the nature, the will of our Creator. And, uh, you know, we can talk about why He chose these people and not other people. That's a different conversation. Uh, but these are the stories we have. And uh, through these lives, through these events, uh, all that we've been able to learn and know about God and about God's grace has been communicated. So the first week we worked together, we talked about Adam and Eve, how beginning with the very first uh, human beings, the first of our kind. You know, <laughs> you think, what's the first of a kind? The, 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 uh, the prototype, right? You know, I, I was watching uh, one of those programs on the History Channel where they were, uh, you know, sort of, I think it was called the cars that built America or the cars of America, something like that. And, uh, you know, they, they had these really cool stories of like the first Model T Ford that was, was ever built or the first Mustang or the first, you know, the first of its kind. And when you think of Adam and Eve, they're the first of our kind. And as we talked about them a couple of weeks ago, we highlighted those commonalities that all human beings have. We come from the same DNA. We, we have the same vocation, the same mission and purpose. We're, we're part of one global community. I know we, we're very tribal about that. We're very segmented about that. But the reality is uh, there is only one kind of human being in the world. That's it. If you, if you possess this certain characteristics, you're a human being. Um, and the superficial stuff, 
the language you speak or how much melatonin is in your skin or melanin is in your skin or, or, you know, what part of the globe you happen to have been born. And none of those things makes you any more or less of a human being. And then we, we talked about that fall and the common nature that we all share. We're all uh, sinful by nature. We all have that lusting, greedy, prideful spirit that seeks to elevate ourselves at the expense of or in the place of others, uh, which, of course, has led to our common fate, our common destiny, which is, as we've been so painfully reminded so many times, as human beings, we are under the sentence of death. But we also know that because one of those human beings, uh, out of all those billions, was very special and very unique, gave his life, uh, that we as a race are, are redeemed and have, a, and, and have the hope of redemption. So, Bishop, I want to say something about our first parents, Adam and Eve. And uh, I don't know why it's so complex and why it's so difficult for people to believe that though we may look different on the exterior, internally, we are all descendants of God's original two human beings, Adam and Eve. And why we look so different, I think that is not the issue. The issue is you and I, as different as we may look, my heart might be a perfect match for you. Uh, my bone marrow might be a perfect match for somebody in the Inuit part of the world, the coldest part of the world. And uh, I've got a very profound realization of how we are all interconnected. And it's unfortunate. It's so hard for us to come to terms with. But I had my DNA recently sequenced. And I was flabbergasted. I am part Irish, part British, part Italian. That knocked my socks off. I'm also Ethiopian, Eritrean, Congolese, Senegalese, Ghanaian, Liberian, and Nigerian. I have relatives that I never knew about in Jamaica, Guyana and Barbados. And I decided to do a follow-up on the webpage as to people that would be first, second, third cousins of mine. And it's a rainbow reflection, white, Chinese, Indian, obviously black, every creed and race under the sun. So I had a good laugh at this thing. And I just wanted to see that. The fact that those connections exist. The fact that, as you mentioned, uh, you know, when it comes to a blood transfusion or or an organ transplant, you know, all that matters is that you know you match the the blood type or you you have the DNA match. You know, the the superficial stuff is is irrelevant to to what is essential to life when you think about it. Yet we know as you know sin entered the human heart and the human consciousness, 
the pretext. You know, we we began to seek a pretext, and we'll talk about that tonight in the story of Cain and Abel. Once sin gets a hold of a person's heart, any excuse will do, even if it's the even if it's something as superficial as the color of somebody's skin or what part of the world they come from or what accent they speak with. Uh, but those common bonds are clearly established in the story uh, and in the scriptures. And you would think, and I would think, and I think the way you do, that to me, this is a cause for celebration. This is something we should, you know, we should rejoice in, that there is this tremendous uh, diversity in, in how human beings have, uh, have, have made it all the way around this world in every climate and every sort of uh, environmental type of condition, how we've been able to adapt, how our own bodies have been able to adapt. Uh, or, you know, we're, if we're in a, you know, an equatorial type place where we're close to tremendous amount of sunlight uh, our, our, over the generations, our skin will darken so that uh, we're less susceptible to uh, the effects of the sun, or if we go to a part of you know, a, a hemis- part of the hemisphere where there's very little sun, how our skin will lighten up so that it can take advantage of every ray of light that is available. And it's just it, it's something that we should just I think you I think you had the perfect reaction, something that you should just laugh. You know, it should bring. It should just bring such joy to know uh, that as human beings, we're, we're so uh, connected to one another, and yet we cannot deny the effect of sin. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they did not just sin for themselves. And that was kind of the point we were talking about when we left or when we were closing out the, the first class. We were in Romans chapter 5 where Paul was talking about because of Adam, now all who come from Adam share that same, that, that same sinful nature and that same sentence of death. And uh, as we move forward tonight, we'll see how that plays out. And the sad thing is, it plays out in the very next generation. All right, so we'll move forward to the stories of Cain and Abel and You've probably heard the names Cain and Abel most of your life. Uh, anytime, anytime you have two brothers fighting, it's almost always uh, compared to a Cain and Abel type story. You know, there's there's there's, there's things the Bible tells us, there's things that the Bible doesn't tell us. So we don't really know whether or not Adam and Eve had children prior to the fall into sin. We we. We, we 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 just don't have that information. Um, it's it's possible that they did. It's possible that they didn't. We don't know, but what we do know is that the first humans to be born after sin had entered into the to the nature of humanity were was were, were Cain and Abel. They were born uh, after the exile from the Garden of Eden. And they were born after uh, Adam and Eve had basically been separated from the presence of God. And so 
you know, we could speculate endlessly of what might have been, but what we have is what we have. <laughs> so we're going to talk about. So that nature, that sinful uh, nature was, there's different, different people argue about whether it gets passed down or whether it's simply, uh, you know, inherited from the more spiritual dimension or whether it's biological. However you want to think about it, after Cain and Abel were born over the course of time, as they grew up, as they moved into adulthood, that nature began to manifest itself, at least in the person of Cain. And we are told that uh, basically one of the root causes of conflict in human history, maybe the root cause of conflict, is this distinction that is made. And, you know, sometimes you ask yourself, why is that in the Bible? Why does it tell us that Abel was a sheep herder or a keeper of sheep and Cain was one who tilled the ground? Why, why is that significant? Well, it's significant when you begin to think about what do sheep eat? <laughs> and where do sheep need to graze? And if Cain is uh, wanting to use a piece of land for uh, growing crops, and Abel is wanting to use that same piece of land for grazing a sheep, what do you have? You have that competition for resources. And you might not, now when I think about that, I think, come on, they have the whole planet to themselves, you know? And they could have just moved on, but we don't know. We don't know what else is going on. But what we do know is that in the process of time, that competition for resources got combined with the competition for God's approval, the competition for worship. And so you can, you can trace all of the worship conflicts, the worship wars, to the story here in Genesis chapter 4. The Bible says that uh, God respected the offering of Abel, but he did not have respect for Cain and his offering. And this made Cain very angry. And uh, it says in the, the New King James, his countenance fell, which basically means that, uh, you know, he began to sulk and pout and, uh, uh, you know, began to be bad-tempered about the whole thing. And, you know, God gives them an out. God tells them that, you know, he has the chance to do well, to, to offer his best, to offer in faith. But if he persists in the way he's going, that tremendous statement, sin lieth at the door. Sin is waiting. The word picture for that in the Hebrew language is of a predator waiting in ambush. If you've ever seen one of those nature documentaries where the lion or the cheetah or the, 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 the wolf is, is kind of crouched down behind a tree or behind a bush waiting for the unsuspecting antelope or whatever, uh, a deer to walk past and then pounces on them without warning. That's the nature of sin. It's always waiting in uh, anticipation of catching us when we are at our most vulnerable. And when you harbor a jealous spirit, when you harbor a bitter spirit, when you harbor a spirit, when you harbor a grievance, that's, when we think about that, 
uh, I was listening to a program uh, today as I was driving around. Basically, the, the point of what the one person was saying is we live in the age of outrage. <laughs> you know, we live in the age where everybody has a grievance. Everybody has some injustice or some provocation that, that, that they're dwelling on, that they're mulling over, that they're harboring in them. And, and some of them are, you know, very legitimate grievances. But the fact that they harbor those feelings and harbor that spirit of I've been taken advantage of or, or I've been abused or I've been mistreated or it's not fair to me. Think about all of the damage and all of the carnage and all of the violence and all of the, the things that are done in the name of these grievances and this, this spirit of, of, of jealousy and of, 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 of outrage that dominates. And we can look back at the story of Cain and Abel. We can see the seeds of that. Cain, rather than taking responsibility for his own uh, inadequate offering, if you want to put it that way, or not offering it in the spirit which he should have, you know, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Maybe, maybe Cain wasn't so cheerful about having to give up a tithe of his of his of his uh, of his crop or whatever it was, rather than addressing his own fault or his own failing and taking responsibility for himself. Instead, he harbored this sense of injustice, which, of course, led him to take justice in his own hands, in his own mind, and led to the killing of his brother. So we have in the story of Cain and Abel the, the seeds of conflict between uh, humans, the first hints of tribalism, the first hints of exalting the self over the other, the first hints of uh, that jealousy and that uh, that grievance mindset, that victim mindset that is so predominant in, in human nature. And, of course, that conflict was centered around not just the resources, but also the right way to worship and what constitutes acceptable worship. And so in the story of Cain and Abel, we have Cain who becomes the murderer of his brother. And then we have Abel, who becomes the first martyr to righteousness. And so if you want to go back through all of, uh, you know, when, when Jesus talked about the, uh, the, the, the fact that all of the prophets and all of the uh, people that had been sent by God had been killed, had been murdered by the Jews by the, their own people. He begins with Abel, right? He identifies Abel as that first uh, who person to literally suffer for righteousness' sake, uh, to to be picked on, to be persecuted, to be attacked for no other reason than to be the. Uh, the symbol of the the bearer of the righteousness of God. And what do we do when we see righteousness in another person? We want to tear them down. <laughs> we want to attack them. We want to persecute them because they make us feel 
inadequate or they make us, you know, it's a provocation to us. You use phrases like holier than thou. <laughs> when we come up against someone who is, who is not quite at our level of pettiness or, or selfishness or greed, and Abel becomes that first person to suffer for the sake of doing the right thing. And, of course, we see that pattern over and over and over again in the Scriptures. New Testament-wise, we read, uh, or, or a little bit further down in the story, let me say, we read that Cain's family and Cain's descendants uh, began to form sort of a civilization that uh, became sort of the what we would think of as the first uh, human uh, culture or human society. And when we look at that, we, we kind of have to ask ourselves a question uh, of whether or not this culture and this civilization um, tendency of humanity is a curse or a blessing. Right, so when human beings come together in significant numbers, they are capable of doing some impressive things. Uh, I've never been, but I hear New York City's very impressive, impressive place. The buildings and how it's laid out. I've never been, but I hear that places like Hong Kong and London and uh, other major cities of the world are uh, truly wonders to behold. When you put Imagine putting 8 million, 10 million, 12 million, 15 million people in one place. Here in South Florida, we've got, you know, somewhere around 5 million people living <laughs> side by side and, and on top of each other. And that does lead to um, some wonderful developments, you know, and, and it fuels that uh, spirit of invention and that spirit of, of uh, progress, we like to call it. And yet, we realize that such invention and such progress very often comes at the expense of our environment, at the expense of the the lower classes, the poor, the the, the ones that you don't have the resources to uh, to take advantage of the progress. Sometimes and many times comes at the cost of our own spirituality and our own relationship with our creator. We become more and more, or let me say it this way, the more self-sufficient that we become, the less God-dependent that we are. And you can see this move. Uh, we know the story of Lamech, and he, he decides one wife's not enough, so he's going to take two. And he decides that uh, avenging Cain seven, seven times is not enough, so anyone hurts him, he's going to get a vengeance on 77 of his relatives. And, uh, you know, see that multiplication of effect, that force multiplier, as human beings come together in societies, particularly the societies that have that inherent sinful drive, whether it's greed, whether it's uh, uh, power, whether, you know, you enough people together. Somebody decides that they got to be in charge, right? Yeah, 
I mean, we have that in the church, right? You get more than three people in the church. Well, somebody's, somebody's got to be in charge. So this, this idea of society is a great blessing, but it also brings tremendous challenges and tremendous uh, potential for conflicts. Uh, the more people that are packed together, the more difficult it becomes to allocate resources equitably. Uh, there becomes a competition for those resources. Uh, the haves, the have-nots, the, the rich, the poor, all of these things become endemic to such a society. Jude mentions it when he's talking about the, uh, he, he's talking about false prophets, their condemnation because they have gone in the way of Cain. Uh, Jude 11, in the way of Cain and have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So he uses, Jude uses Cain as an example of this pursuit of false religion, false piety, false, uh, what we today would call idolatry, this idea of we don't need God, we don't need to walk right before God uh, to enjoy our best lives or to, to make profit or to have power or to, to do things that are part of our sinful nature to do. Do I have any comments or questions on the beginnings of human society? Yes, Bishop. Um, I don't think I'm thoroughly clear on verse 23 with um, Lamech with his two wives and, um, you know, him telling them about 70 and 7-fold. If you can explain what he was seeing there, please. I don't think I followed it. Well, you know, there's differences of opinion, but basically when a person, there's a concept in many cultures of the blood price. What the original, so go back to the curse of Cain, right, or the mark of Cain. I'm going to trust everybody's familiar with the mark of Cain. If you're if you're not, that's a different conversation then. Basically, after Cain killed Abel, Cain was concerned about retribution, most likely from the fact that everybody, every person, other person alive at that time was related to, was related to Abel. So he was concerned about retribution, a life for life, right? Eye for an eye, that's the, that was the concept. So God put a mark on Cain that basically said, if anyone hurts Cain or kills Cain, Cain will be avenged seven times, meaning seven of that person's relatives will have the same. So if Cain loses a hand, seven of the person's relatives who took the hand from Cain will lose a hand. If Cain is killed, seven of the relatives of the person who kills him will be killed. So it's this idea of the blood price, right? Lamech takes it to the next level. He says if, if the punishment for hurting Cain was seven times retribution, and I don't know why, but just the old, the old story about the Hatfields and the McCoys pops, it, pops into my head. Um, you'll, have to, you'll have to look it up if you don't know what I'm talking about. But Lamech was saying if seven times retribution was what Cain was entitled to, someone who attacks me, I will 
avenge them 77 times, meaning basically they'll wipe out their whole family. They'll wipe out their kin. You know how these feuds, you know how these feuds can escalate. You, 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 you kill one of, like in the mafia almost. If you go back to some of the mafia, you know, you kill one of theirs, they kill two of yours. They, uh, you kill three of theirs, they kill four of yours. You know, it's this, it's this escalating of the price. Theoretically, as a deterrent, but really more just to prove how you know what a what a powerful person you were, what a you know what a major force you were to be reckoned with. So, Lamech's claim was that uh, uh, anyone who attacked him, seventy-seven, well, not only would that person be killed, but seventy-seven of their closest and dearest would also be killed. Now, there are other interpretations, but that's the basic one, if that makes sense. Does that, does that make sense? Yes, Bishop, it does. Thank you. Okay. And it's not all that different. I mean, we in the West, we have a more uh, punishment fit the crime type mentality, you know. Uh, but many, many centuries, for many, many centuries, you know, the children did suffer for the crimes of their parents, and relatives would have to pay a price if one of their relatives stole. And, you know, that says a little bit something about how societies worked at the beginning. You know, there was this this much more of a communal spirit, right? Um, and it still works that way. If you look at some of these societies, if you look at some of these societies in like China or Russia or some of these more communistic, totalitarian dictator I think, some of the Muslim countries that are under dictator rule. Uh, that is very much how they operate. If you're found guilty of a crime against the state, not only do you suffer, but your whole family might suffer. You know, your family might lose their jobs, might might be considered potential uh, traitors or potential saboteurs, or uh, you know, it's not. It's you know, ask anyone if you know someone down in South Florida. You know, we're very familiar with Castro's Cuba. A lot of us grew up knowing people that had fled the uh, the communist regime in Cuba. And they will tell you the stories of, yeah, you know, my Uncle Joe, you know, was in the Bay of Pigs, so we all had to leave or else we would have all been killed, you know. Or, but if you committed a crime against the government, if you were considered a threat to the government, your whole family, uh, um, your wife's family or your husband's family, uh, you know, anyone that was considered a close associate or friend of yours, they'd all be in jeopardy. So this is actually consistent with societies that value the community more than the individual. Now, we in the West, we've kind of flipped that inside out. We value, for the most part, individuals over communities, at least in our own minds. So you don't really see that type of penal code or that type of blood price ethic in many Western cultures, but still very, very prominent. Middle East, uh, uh, Asia, you know, parts of South America that are under despotic rule. It, it's very common in the world today. Yes, Bishop. I, I want to take it up from verse 16. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord 
and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the east of Edom. Now, what is the significance of this? It gives us from chapter 16, from verse 16, and it ends there, and then it picks up that Adam knew his wife again and had sex. Then we go to five, and it gives you the genealogy of Adam, and it was the fact that God sent Abel to the land of Nod, a sort of cancellation of him, because after that, there is nothing else in the descendants. It goes from Adam to Seth, from Seth to his gen- generation, and then further down and further down, and nothing else is mentioned of the line of Abel. So was that a cancellation of Abel? Cain, Cain. Well, you know, your, your question about why Cain basically disappears from the biblical record is a good one because if we if we go to you know chapter six, there's some possibility you know, line is briefly referred to there. But basically, yes. Remember this: the story that God is the story that God is telling us through these lives is the story of redemption, and since the redemption past moved through Seth and not through Cain, you know, his contribution to that story is is pretty much complete. Now, his actual physical presence in the world was not erased. Uh, His descendants would go and at a minimum, they would continue to the time of the flood. But his spiritual lineage, that heritage of faith, that heritage of that promise of the woman's seed and the ultimate redemption and the ultimate rescue of humanity, would uh, he would no longer be included in that. And that, that could be perceived as part of his punishment, or it could simply be understood that Cain was never truly repentant. Remember, the only thing he feared was retribution. He, uh, yeah, there's no indication that he ever, ever you know, really genuinely repented of what he did. Now, uh, now we don't know. We again, we're arguing from from silence. We're arguing from absence. Maybe King did repent, <laughs> but you know, no indication is given that he did. So from that point on, he has no further role to play in what God is going to do through the human race. And remember, the stories that we're told in the Bible are all specific to that work that God was doing through humanity to redeem not just humanity, but all of creation. And since Cain had no part to play in it, either by choice or by God's decree, there was nothing really further to, to, to add, or he had nothing really further to add, and, and you know, the stories move on. Uh, yes, Pastor. I, uh, that, that was always my, my view. <laughs> Is that um, once the, uh, the 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 history or the um, story of of Cain um, and Abel, once it, uh, the, the the incident with Cain and Abel, so once it was completed, then um, the Bible sent the focus on the line of Christ, which is came through Seth. Uh, that's why I always look at it. 
Yes, Pastor. I want to say something back up with what Brother Donald had said in verse 16 and on. But what happened to the wives after they went to the land? They discovered the land and all the, they have all the kids. What happened to Cain's wife after that part of the, the, the chapter? Well, you know, we're, we're not given any much information. We're told that she had, uh, she had children. She bore children to Cain. Um, but, you know, because man and wife are one flesh, that, this is kind of an interesting point. I'm kind of, kind of glad you brought it up. You know, Cain's sin was not just something that affected him. But, you know, his wife, whether she was consenting to it or not, whether, whether she suggested it or whether she tried to stop it, you know, we don't know. Either way, Cain's action affected her and her children and her family uh, every bit as much as, as it did Cain's. And, and that's a powerful reminder that no sin is ever done in isolation. You know, sin, we, we may think, oh, the only person I'm hurting is myself. Well, no, that, that's never the case. You know, uh, whoever you're connected to, whether it's by marriage, by, by blood, by friendship, by relationship of any kind, uh, it always gets, uh, gets to be collateral damage when, when you step out of God's will, when you go against God. And, and we're not told uh, anything else about Cain's wife, but, you know, what can we surmise? We can surmise that whatever Cain had to endure, she had to endure by his side. Anyone else have a, a thought there? Just one other point, Bishop. When Cain left and went to the land of Nath, was he already hitched his wife and they both left? Oh, was that wife provided for him in the land of Nod? The king's wife, or the where did king's wife come from question is, is as old as Bible study. Um, the way it's written, you could, you, you could believe that she was, that they were already married. There's no mention is made of him taking a wife, just that he and his wife began to have children. But it, it could go either way. The Bible isn't clear. There's no reason to believe, and I know people get caught up sometimes in some of the more uh, conspiracy type things, uh, uh, you know, the the alternate uh, other kinds of human beings in the world, and uh, maybe Cain married a Neanderthal or married a, you know, again we're we're dealing with we're dealing with the fact that as human beings. And I'll say this, and if you take an old earth view, a young earth view, a purely evolutionist view, a purely intelligent design view, or any combination of the above, of the above one thing we can say that applies equally to all interpretations is that all human beings today come from the same person. Uh, however that worked itself out, it worked itself out. So... At some point in time, whether it was 6,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, 4 million years ago, whenever, whenever you want to put it, somewhere there, a brother married his sister. 
And if you really want to drill it down, Adam married his twin, right? They had identical DNA. <laughs> she made from his rib. So uh, maybe twin's not the right word there. Maybe bone would be the word we would use. But very, very early in the history of humanity, um, there was just one family. And for there to be people like us today, that one family had to make babies and procreate and branch out. And, you know, we can imagine a thousand different scenarios. We really can. But remember what we're dealing with. You know, it wasn't unusual even up to 100 years ago for cousins to marry. As a matter of fact, in some royal families, that's all who ever married were cousins. Um, now, today we look at that and say, no, you can't do that because there's genetic, uh, there's potential for, you know, genetic uh, disease and genetic uh, events to happen that, that, you know, would be, would be very uh, difficult for a person to live with or may even prevent people from having children. But we're talking very early in human history when our DNA was not yet corrupted, not yet carrying all of these biological uh, risks with it. So uh, the truth of the matter is, you know, Cain could have been, or Cain was most certainly married to one of his biological relatives, and that marriage and that relationship could have begun before being exiled or after being exiled. Uh, but what is clear is that there were other people because otherwise, who was Cain worried about taking revenge on him? You know, if it was just Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, if it was just the four, the only threat, Abel's dead, the only threat Cain had would be from Adam or Eve, right? And we know that that's, you know, that's not what happened. So there could have been, and we don't want to, you know, we could play the game. If Adam and Eve was say, a hundred years in the garden, they could have had, you know, a hundred set of twins, and those twins could have matured and grown and themselves had hundreds of sets of twins. And so by the time we get to this part of the story, you know, there could be hundreds, maybe thousands of people, human beings already in the world. You know, we're told in the millennial kingdom, despite the fact that most of humanity will have been destroyed or been raptured or resurrected, that within a hundred, you know, that, that within that thousand year period, a little child will become a great nation of people. The ability for humans to procreate, the ability for humans to, particularly under ideal environmental circumstances and ideal biological circumstances, uh, there's no real difficulty in uh, the story of Cain and his wife and their progeny. Uh, but to when he met his wife, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that you know they they could have been together for many years before this had happened with Cain and Abel. And this is this is evidence that once you begin speculating, you can really speculate almost any kind of scenario. But Cain and his wife were certainly together by the time that he was uh, settling down in the land of... Yes, Pastor, I think the, the problem here is um, 
many people believe that uh, like it's a, a year or two or three, but but um, according to the Bible, um, it, um, I think Adam and Eve they live hundreds of years, and they had sons and daughters, and um, of course, there's a matter of as you said, the time span. Whether it was twenty, thirty, or forty years after, whatever years after. Yeah, and, and we can talk about that a little bit. We could have got into it last week of Adam and Eve about human lifespans in the early chapters of Genesis and how, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, in some cases as many as eight hundred or more years, during which and we're not told how long the women lived. You know, the Bible only tells us how long the men lived, but you know, during which multiplication factor if we if we multiply it by five, a woman in the modern era has about a 30-year window at max of of fertility, basically. Uh, you know, from the time she begins puberty to the time she begins, you know, menopause, basically the window. And, of course, the prime years being probably about 20 to 25 years uh, in that range. Well, if we multiply that by the lifespans that they were living then, it's potentially of 100, 150, 200 years of, of time available to have children. You could, you know, we, we could be talking, I can't do the math in my head right now, but it's potential we could be talking hundreds of thousands of people within a couple hundred years, you know? maybe a million people within, say, three or four hundred years. So now the genetic diversity would have accumulated very quickly under those circumstances. So you would have already begun to see uh, some divergence maybe in some genetic traits, maybe like hair color, skin color, eye color, as people spread out began to adapt to their different environments. So... Uh, there's nothing here that's biologically or environmentally impossible. As a matter of fact, under these ideal circumstances, this is exactly what we would have expected to take place, as it would take place today if we had the same set of circumstances, which we don't. And I, for one, am grateful because I'm not sure I could with hundreds of children. <laughs> Having hundreds of children in my house would be it would be a, I don't know, maybe it'd be all right. I guess, I guess it could be fun. You could have like 12 football teams all at once. But um, we're, we're kind of getting into some speculative areas. Uh, I want to mention before we close tonight, the birth of Seth. I know uh, the brother mentioned it earlier, but uh, the birth of Seth is emblematic of God's promise to renew humanity and to renew creation through a human being, through a human child, through the seed of the woman. And we see the first of those uh, seed promises fulfilled, uh, at least partially, by the birth of Seth. It becomes to us the symbol of renewal by rebirth, by being born again. And I also want to mention the fact that the Bible does not leave Abel's cry for justice unanswered. And we are told in Hebrews that uh, the righteous blood of Abel's 
that cried out for justice and for vengeance has been satisfied by uh, the offering of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the righteous payment for sin. All these punishments we want to inflict on people for their faults. Maybe they're, you know, maybe we can look at them as sort of uh, preventative measures so they don't do it again. Maybe we can look at it as sort of a, uh, a kind of justice where you you suffer the consequences of your choices, but what it's not is redemptive. And what Abel cried for wasn't simply vengeance. What Abel, Abel cried for was justice, real, genuine justice, which is the word at the heart of justification. Abel wanted his life to be justified, wanted his faith to be justified. Basically, he wanted to be assured that he did not die in vain, or he didn't die for no reason. Uh, I don't think he wanted, you know, I don't know how he would have felt about Cain's punishment, but really what he wanted was his own faith and his own righteousness vindicated. And that is what Christ did for us on the cross. He vindicates the faith that produces that righteousness of God in us. And so you can think of Abel in one sense as the first member of the Church of Jesus Christ, the founding member of the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, and uh, I think that's kind of a cool way to uh, to put a to put a, a period on Abel's story. The first one to die for faith, as uh, far as I know, he might be the first one resurrected. <laughs> I don't know. I guess they'll all be resurrected at the same time, but. He certainly can claim uh, to be the first one to look forward in faith to the justification that comes through Jesus Christ. This has been a production of the Lighthouse Church of God. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. You are welcome to join us for service every Sunday at 1030 a.m. and on Wednesdays at 745 p.m. For more information or to support our ministry, visit our website at www.lhcogfl.org. Or if you're in the Broward County area, we would love for you to visit our church located at 1890 Southwest 31st Avenue, Fort Lauderdale, Florida 33312. God bless you. Until next time. This is the Lighthouse Church of God, lighting the way through the storms of life.